0: Support for this NPR podcast and the following message come from Klaviyo, the email and text marketing platform built to keep customers coming back. Creators communicate with Klaviyo. Get started for free at klaviyo.com slash NPR. Hey, really quick before we start the show, the How I Built This book is now a New York Times and Wall Street Journal bestseller. So thank you to all of you who ordered it and for your support of this show. If you haven't picked it up and you want to learn the secrets of how to develop an entrepreneurial mindset, How I Built This, the book is for you. It's now available wherever books are sold and in most countries around the world or by visiting howibuiltthis.com or guyraz.com. And thanks. Did you give it the name Famous Dave's as kind of a joke? Because you weren't get famous, right?
1: Well, on the road out of town, there's like Dave's Guns, Dave's Antiques, Dave's Boats. So I was going to name my place Dave's Famous Barbecue Shack. I get my business cards and it said, Famous Dave's (laughs) Barbecue. I am mad, can't believe the printer messed up my business cards. And my wife said, Dave, calm down, why don't you just leave it? So Famous Dave's, (laughs) the rest is history.
0: From NPR, it's How I Built This, a show about innovators, entrepreneurs, idealists, and the stories behind the movements they built. I'm Guy Raz, and on the show today, how a passion for smoked ribs led Dave Anderson to open a barbecue shack in the middle of nowhere and how it grew into Famous Dave's, one of the biggest barbecue chains in the country. So most of the biggest restaurant chains started in small places. McDonald's was born in San Bernardino, California. Domino's in Ypsilanti, Michigan. Sonic, Shawnee, Oklahoma. Arby's, Boardman, Ohio. There are a number of reasons why this is the case. There's usually less competition, the rent is lower, and if what you're offering is new or different, people will stand in line for it, as they did at the original Boardwalk Fries in Ocean City, Maryland, which is now a franchise company with more than 100 locations nationwide. They stood in line at Chicken Salad Chick in Auburn, Alabama, which now has 140 stores, Same with Five Guys in Arlington, Virginia, an empire of more than 1,500 locations today. And as you will hear, in the mid-1990s, people came from far and wide for some of the best pit barbecue they ever had. And it wasn't in Texas Hill Country or Eastern North Carolina, but rather in Hayward, Wisconsin, a town of 2,300 people in the northern reaches of the United States where in January, it can get down to minus 17 degrees. This is where Dave Anderson, after years of trying out different business ideas, decided to open Famous Dave's Barbecue in 1994. Today, Famous Dave's has about 125 locations nationwide, making it one of the largest barbecue chains in the country. But the story of Dave's is also a story of how a simple passion for serving smoked ribs, chicken, and brisket can grow too big and too fast, and how a founder can almost lose complete control of a good idea. Dave Anderson grew up in a working-class family in Chicago in the 1950s and 60s, both his parents were Native Americans who grew up on reservations in different parts of the country.
1: My dad's a full-blood Choctaw Indian from Idabel, Oklahoma, and if you were to look at a map of Oklahoma, you would see that Idabel is in the southeast corner of Oklahoma, which is way down south. And then my mom is from the La Couture Reservation, which is way up north. She's. Uh, a member of the Courte Lake Superior Band of Ojibwe.
0: So she grew up in Wisconsin, he grew up in Oklahoma, and how did they meet?
1: Both of my parents, I, I think is, you know, the unfortunate part of my story, were taken by the Bureau of Indian Affairs Away from their families and stuck in Indian boarding schools, basically making orphans out of them. Uh, now fortunately for me though, my parents met at Haskell Institute for Indians in Lawrence, Kansas.
0: So both just to clarify. so both your parents grew up on Indian reservations. They met at a boarding school that I guess was where Indian kids from across the country were brought to, I don't know,
1: basically to mainstream them because my dad, when he was brought into a boarding school, didn't speak English. He was uh, basically a Choctaw-speaking Indian. And uh, when he got put into these boarding schools, he can remember actually being beat and having his mouth washed out with soap until he would forget his language and only speak English. Mm. Didn't happen in Abraham Lincoln's day or George Washington's day, but this generation, my parents, I think that's a story that sometimes people in America never hear.
0: No, they don't. What did your dad do for a living when you were a kid?
1: My dad was an electrician, and uh, my mom was a secretary. She worked as a secretary. So I was like a lot of kids that lived in a working-class neighborhood, and We didn't have a lot, but we always had food on the table. I think growing up, though, I I always knew that my family was different because when all the other kids were going out for pizza and hot dogs, especially in Chicago, being a great pizza town and Chicago hot dogs, my dad would load us up into the family car, and we were headed down to the south side of Chicago for rib tips. Hmm. And growing up, I knew everybody, black-owned barbecue joint in Chicago. And I can remember as early as 1959 eating rib tips at Lem's Barbecue on 59th and State Street.
0: Yeah, I mean, Chicago became obviously hugely important as a barbecue capital because of the Great Migration. So many African Americans who, who migrated out of the Jim Crow South moved to Chicago and brought with them their culinary traditions.
1: You know, they also brought blues, what a great combination. And so Chicago, throughout the years, has always been known as a great blues town yeah. and also great barbecue.
0: Dave, as a kid, did your mom and dad instill strong Indian values in you? Did you did you have a strong Indian identity as a kid?
1: You know, growing up uh, in a Native American family, we were cognizant that— uh, We were America's first people. My dad was very proud of his Choctaw nation. My mom was proud to be from the La Reservation. And for us, that got carried over in that we ate Indian foods. My dad was very insistent that he had his foods from the South. My mom, uh, when she was growing up, she did a lot of fishing and she harvested wild rice. And and so uh, throughout the years my dad would always, what I almost call make pilgrimages down to the south so he could get his banaha, which is a corn type of bread, you know, almost like a tamale wrapped up in corn husks. And then mm-hmm. my mom would always take us fishing up north and we would harvest wild rice. And uh, But more importantly, to raise money for the family, my parents would have a Indian fry bread stand and My dad would grill and smoke up venison. My mom would make Indian fry bread and also wild rice soup, but we would sell venison fry bread sandwiches along with bowls of wild rice soup. I think attending Indian powwows with my mom, where we would have this Indian fry bread stand, really taught me a lot about cooking, cooking outdoors. But also the appreciation for foods that are harvested naturally, being able to harvest wild rice, uh, fishing, and, and all of those are experiences that I think throughout the years have always carried over to me.
0: How were you as a student, and how, how, how was school um, difficult for you, or, or were you a pretty good student?
1: <laughs> I, I was not a good student. I thought I was the dumbest kid in class. You know, I. Huh. Uh, I I can remember my dad sitting me at the kitchen table. I would have a blank piece of paper in front of me, and I would cry because I didn't know what to do. And it wasn't until years later that I found out that I had attention deficit disorder, which explains a lot. Hmm. You know, it explains why I was bouncing around all the time. And, you know, back then, I don't think there was a name for attention deficit disorder other than you were a problematic kid you know, if it wasn't for an art teacher telling me, he said, Dave, he said, I I know you struggle in the rest of your classes. He said, but when I watch you, you may not be the best artist, but you see things that other people don't see. You know, I would have never heard that from an English teacher. I never would have heard that from a math teacher. And that really stuck with me all these years. I'm able to see things other people don't see. I'm able to visualize. I'm able to see where things can go.
0: You, so clearly high school was not, school was not, did not come easy for you and was challenging for you. I mean, I guess when you were 18, you kind of had your first experience with entrepreneurship, something about selling fuel additives or some, (laughs) what was that? Tell me about that. So
1: I was right out of high school and that year I had gotten a call from a friend who said, Dave, do you have a suit? I said, of course I got a suit. He said, put your suit on, I'm picking you up. So I put my suit on, I have no clue what's happening. We drive to a beautiful hotel near O'Hare Airport, and he still wouldn't tell me what's going on. And then we we go on to the lower level, we go into this beautiful room, and there's a lot of people in there. And he said, you are about to witness one of the most incredible things you'll ever see. And then all of a sudden, the most dynamic person comes out and starts telling all the people in this room this incredible story, how it doesn't matter where they've been, what they've been through, or what they think of themselves, they can be successful. And this person was none other than Zig Ziglar.
0: The famous motivational speaker, yeah.
1: Yeah, I I mean, listening to Zig Ziglar share how I could become an entrepreneur selling oil additive and gas conditioner, and I never heard anybody so motivating, so inspiring, telling me that I could be successful. So... uh, go home. And my dad asked why I put on a suit and where'd I go? I I said, you know, I heard the most amazing thing that I could be successful. I could own my own business. And I said, dad, you got to hear this guy. He's uh, having another meeting tomorrow night. Would you please go with me? I begged him. So he goes with me the next night, and here, this guy sounded like my dad. This guy was from Yazoo City, Mississippi. He spoke with a southern accent. He said, doesn't matter where you come from. doesn't matter what you've been through. Anybody could succeed. And my dad was blown away, too. For the first time, he thought his son maybe could be a businessman, maybe, you know, and it's uh, oil conditioners. It has to do with a car. And maybe my son can do that.
0: So you went to see Zig Ziglar speak. And by the way, we had Holly Thaggard on, who who founded Supergoop, uh, who also was influenced by his tapes. How did you find this opportunity to get involved in selling a fuel additive? Was that connected to Zig Ziglar or was that completely separate?
1: I think Zig Ziglar was the spokesperson for a multi-level company. Got it. And it cost $2,500 to join. Now, $2,500 in 1971 was a lot of money. But my dad, for the first time, realized that his son, who wasn't the best student, uh, who barely got through school, who had ADHD, maybe this was something that he could do. So my dad had some savings, and then he borrowed some money to give me this chance.
0: What? Just out of curiosity, what was the product? Tell me what the product that you were trying to sell.
1: It was called Steed Conditioners. There was a gas additive, which made your car run better. There was an oil conditioner.
0: Right. And did you have success selling it?
1: (laughs) I I don't think I sold one case of the stuff. My dad had a garage full of of Steed, oil, and gas conditioners, which (laughs) never went away. I didn't sell anything. But here's the thing. Part of this opportunity was we had to go through a five-day how-to-sell training program. That training program changed my life Hmm. because part of the training program every day was they would tear down everything you thought about yourself, and then they would build you up.
0: I read that you even, you would like stand in front of a mirror and practice shaking hands to gain confidence as a salesman? Would you do that?
1: Yeah, because, you know, growing up, I was really probably the shyest bashful kid in class. And here I am trying to be a salesman. And so for years in my dad's basement, I I stood in front of a $5 mirror that I got from Kmart and I had a candle and I would say, A, B, C. and, And I tried to put that candle out with my voice. And I would practice smiling in the mirror. Today, everybody thinks I'm photogenic. They think I've got a good smile. Well, I worked at that smile. In fact, I even would wink at myself. But these were the things that I did because I realized I had to change who I was. I had to go from being a shy, bashful, dumb kid into being somebody that could go into a room and be able to share a story being able to tell somebody who you were
0: huh but meanwhile the the gas conditioner business did not work out and i guess you you then got like another job working at a at a new store location for, for Eddie power
1: right and that that was a pretty important turning point in my life because i helped open up a brand new store, uh, start to finish which Hmm. would help me later on in life but I I went over there and the significant part of this is that uh, not only did I meet my wife there who was selling uh, menswear at Eddie Bauer, that's kind of how I get into selling terrariums Wait, terrariums? Yeah, Uh, there was a young lady there who was selling these little bubble balls at Christmas that had Partridge berries and what they call princess pines, wrapped in some moss, and I never seen anything so so beautiful. Well, she had said that she just couldn't go out and sell them. I said, well, I can sell. And so on my own time, when I wasn't working at Eddie Bauer, I would go out and I would go to a flower store and show them these bubble balls, and they liked them. Then I realized that I should be doing this for myself. So I. Uh, started making my own line of terrariums and planted dish gardens.
0: And you would just make them yourselves? You would just make the little garden inside the balls?
1: Yeah. You know, <laughs> I actually had a corner in my dad's basement where I would bring these huge bags of dirt and uh, sand and other ingredients to to make the right dirt for these terrariums. And Uh, Then my dad, being an electrician, set up a whole line of grow lights in, in his basement. So I started bringing in hundreds and hundreds of plants.
0: How did you know what to do? You just kind of figured it out? How did you know how to make them look nice?
1: Well, I think it goes back to my art teacher who said, Dave, you see things other people don't see. So I, I think I had this ability that I could take these little plants and arrange them so that there was almost a sort of magical feeling to them. You know, they, they were alive, they had color, and, and I was able to arrange them. So they, they really looked special. And I think that's what the florists you know saw when I would bring my samples, and they saw something that was really special.
0: Hmm. so so did you start to make some sales?
1: Yeah, the first time I have my own samples, I go to Richard Lang Florist and I got my first order from Mr. Ashner at Richard Lang Florist. And that Mother's Day, I went to his flower shop because I knew he was going to be busy. And, you know, what a lot of people don't realize is that florists, unlike a retail store that can order toys three months in advance floors have to work like days around the clock because it seems like everybody forgets they have a mother until Mother's Day. But all of these flower arrangements have to be fresh. So I went to him and I helped him. I busted down his boxes. I I swept his floor. I even cleaned his bathroom for him. And then I helped him deliver flowers. And After that Mother's Day, everybody's exhausted. He comes up to me and he said, Here, put this in your pocket. And he hands me a fistful of cash. And I said, Mr. Ashner, I can't, I can't accept this. I came here to help you because that's how grateful I am. You gave me my first opportunity. Mr. Ashner couldn't believe that I would work for nothing. And he went and told every one of his florists uh, that he was good friends with. He said, you got to meet this kid. He's a hard worker. He's got beautiful stuff. Give him a chance. Give him an opportunity. So after that first summer, I had almost every major retail florist in the city of Chicago.
0: Wow. Buying your terrariums?
1: Buying my terrariums, planted dish gardens. Yeah. So were you
0: starting to feel pretty confident uh, about the business?
1: Well, you know... Part of my story is that I'm Native American. Just started out in business. My parents don't have money. I don't have money. My business is growing, and I can't get a bank loan. I must have pounded the streets of Chicago. I, I went to bank after bank, and always got turned down. You got to have assets. You got to have collateral. And I said, "Well, I'm starting out. I really don't." By the way, what what's an asset? You know, <laughs> I mean, I would have stacks of orders, and I would go into a bank, and I wasn't able to get anywhere. But something else Mr. Ashner shared with me. One day, he said, you know, Dave, if you really want to get ahead, you've got to join the local Chamber of Commerce. So I dressed up, and I went to a Chamber of Commerce meeting. And here, every mover and shaker in the community that was in business was there. And they always had a speaker, and so I liked that. I, I, I joined, you know, my local chamber of commerce, and I was there religiously. In fact, I started helping set up. And one day I was at a chamber of commerce meeting, and a, one of the presidents of the bank uh, grabs me after the meeting. His name was Gerhard Umloff. He was the president of the Bank of Chicago on Wilson Avenue. He said, Anderson, Jim Ashner speaks highly of you. He said, I'm having a promotion at my bank this Saturday. How would you like to set up in our lobby? I'm going to have somebody on the other side pass out hot dogs and balloons and popcorn and you can sell your dish gardens. So the next morning, I show up at the bank, I I set up, and I sell out. Wow. I'm packing up my boxes and about ready to leave and the president of the bank, Gerhard Umloff, he says, Anderson, he said, I want to see you in my office. I am sweating bullets. I think I must have pissed off one of his customers, and and I start to go back to his office, and I have never seen a desk as big as this desk. And he says, pretty good job, Andy. <laughs> I, I heard about your dish gardens, and you really did a good job with my bank clientele here. And he said, I also understand that you're looking for a loan. I said, yes, sir. He said, well, how much do you need? I said, $10,000. And he's looking at me. He says, well, what kind of assets do you have? And I said, oh, my heart sunk. I knew I wasn't going to get my loan. I said, well, sir, I, I I don't have assets. I figured I had a you know, net worth of $400. And he didn't say anything for quite a while. He sat there looking at me. Finally, he reaches down into his desk drawer. He said, "We don't usually do this, but I just watched you today sell out every one of your products." He said, "I'm going to take a fly on this." And with that, he wrote out a check for $10,000 on my signature alone. Wow.
0: And obviously, I mean, you were really able to grow this business. I read that like at a certain point you were doing more than like $300,000 in revenue a year, um, and, and you'd hired a bunch of people. You know, you had employees, but, uh, but then I guess it ground to a halt, like it, and eventually, like went under. What happened?
1: Well, act of God. You know, I don't know how to explain it other than the Chicago blizzard of 1979. Look it up. You will see snow that goes over the roof of cars. The mayor of city of Chicago could not clean city streets for three months. Because of that blizzard, that snowstorm, that just created a gridlock in the city of Chicago, a lot of businesses went bankrupt. And, and in the flower business, I had a whole bunch of floors that could not pay me at all. Uh, and then for months, no
0: orders. At that time, you were in your 20s. Were you married? Yeah. Did you have kids at that point when you were... When you had the terrarium business?
1: I uh, We just had one young son, uh, James. And, you know, a lot of people don't realize when you can't pay bills. You know, back then I was digging through seat cushions to find change just so I could buy my kids milk. It, it was tough. It was just so tough that because of the snowstorm, I ended up going bankrupt. Lost <laughs> everything because of that.
0: Yeah, so this is the early 1980s and and when that business collapsed I, I guess um I guess you worked at a few other jobs in sales before you landed a consulting gig with a Native American tribe in Wisconsin. What what kind of what kind of business did they have that they needed help with?
1: Well, it was my mom's tribe, the Lake Superior Band of Lac right? Ojibwe. They had called me up and they said, "Dave, We understand that you owned your own business in Chicago. We could really use your help. They had a cranberry marsh, they had a logging company, they had a construction company that was building houses for Indian people. They had a grocery store, they had a printing company, they had a gas station, Mm -hmm. and they had a bingo hall. But one of the things I noticed right away was every time I was in one of these businesses, we were failing. We were losing money like water flowing out of a sieve. Hundreds of thousands of dollars, easily a half a million dollars a year we were losing. And then I realized that the problem was is that with any of the people working within these businesses, they didn't think successfully. They, they, they didn't talk about achievement.
0: So they wanted you to help them kind of turn their businesses around. And you kind of realized that that morale was actually the biggest problem? It wasn't mismanagement, it wasn't, but morale was the top challenge?
1: Not, not just morale, just the basic understanding of thinking successfully. Yeah, They didn't talk about profits, they didn't talk about achievement. That's when I called up Zig Ziglar, and I said, Zig, remember me? You met my dad, were the Native Americans from uh, Oklahoma, my dad's Choctaw. He said, I remember you, Dave. I said, I would like to bring 20 of my managers and my assistant managers down to Dallas, Texas, to go through your Born to Win course. So I bring this group down there. I come back, and boy, did I catch holy hell. The tribal leadership comes to me and said, we heard you took all of our managers down to Happy Camp. We could have used that money to have groceries for the poor. We could have built roofs over the elderly. I said, yeah, but you're failing in your businesses because nobody thinks about success.
0: And when they came back from the Zig Ziglar experience or sessions like the team that you brought there, were they transformed?
1: Very much so. We had a group of Native business people who went from doing a job to becoming entrepreneurs in a way that really wanted to be successful in their businesses. And within three years, we turned around all the businesses, we're now making money, we now have accountability, and we got recognized by President Reagan's Commission on Indian Reservation Economies as being one of the top eight most progressive tribes in the country.
0: Hmm. So I guess on the strength of this success, you you decided to go and get more education. You decide to do a master's degree in the mid-'80s. And by the way, just because we, we didn't talk about this much, you actually went to college back in the 70s. You went to Roosevelt University in Chicago, uh, but you never finished. Um, but still, you went and pursued a master's degree in public administration at Harvard. How did that happen?
1: Well, kind of what happened... For years, I mean years, I would enroll every fall religiously. I would enroll in school, and I always dropped out. I I mean, I think if you went back and looked at Roosevelt University's uh, records, (laughs) you'd laugh because you'd see enrolled, dropped out, enrolled, dropped out. I, I just could never make it. I think what made the difference for me at Harvard was I was able to take the courses that I wanted to take And I took courses that I understood, because once you get into any master's program in Harvard or any graduate program, you can basically go to any school there and and take a course. So having worked for a tribe, I really flourished in a course that had to do with community development. And so I was able to design a course that really made sense to me, and I was passionate about it. And... I did well. I, I, I mean, in fact, I did really well. So by then, I'm starting to understand that maybe I'm not as dumb as I thought. So in
0: 1986, you you get your degree from Harvard, a master's degree, and and you are then, I guess, sort of recruited by another tribe in Minnesota to help them with their bingo operation. Um, and this is like early days. I mean, it's sort of. Indian casinos and and Indian gaming was still in kind of its nascent phase at that point. Um, so tell me what you what you did. I mean, You get there and they were they had like bingo parlors there that and that was a, a how they were making some of their money.
1: Right, and I didn't know a thing about bingo. But again, you know, one of my strengths is seeing things that other people don't see. So I'd watch this bingo game and I would see. Generally, ladies and some guys, older guys, they come to bingo, you know, spend a few dollars and have a good time. And I got to thinking, I said, you know, some of these gals really spend a lot of money playing bingo. So I asked this other guy who was kind of helping me, I said, Fred, I said, what do you think they spend here sometimes? He said, you know, they may spend anywhere from $20 to $50. I said, really? Well, this place can hold 400 people.
0: Where where was it held? (laughs)
1: It was in a a skating rink for Hmm. kids. And uh, I said, why don't we hold a big bingo game? Because back then, the bingo games generally had a jackpot of $1,000. But I was thinking, well, if I could fit 400 people in here and they spent $50, that's $20,000. So I said, Fred, why don't we offer a $20,000 jackpot? And he looked at me like I was crazy. Hmm. I said, I think we can do it. I, I, I said, if, if you were to have $20,000 bingos, what do you think they would pay? He said, well, I think they'd spend $100. I said, great. Let's charge $100 and see if we could sell it.
0: And did people, I mean, $20,000 jackpot, I'm assuming it attracted attracted people to the bingo hall.
1: Oh, my God. We we not only sold out, we had people that were, like, banging on the door. We, we literally had to lock the doors, and we had hundreds of people standing outside that wanted in. And that's what really kind of started my being known in Indian country because then I started uh, like a consulting business that I would help other tribes figure out how to do big bingos. Huh. And I was doing a con- some consulting for the Mille Lacs tribe and the tribal chairman came up to me. And he said, I foresee that casino gaming is going to be a a big thing. Could you help get us started? And so we were able to put together a financing group. So I was one of the original founders of Grand Casinos.
0: Uh And and so all these casinos were on Indian tribal lands?
1: We started out that way, and then Mm -hmm. we got to be so successful, we actually took Grand Casinos public. So that's the first time I was part of a company that went public. Wow! And we went on to build eight casinos all over the country. In wow. fact, uh, also built Stratosphere.
0: Oh, Stratosphere, the uh, the hotel in uh, Las Vegas? Yeah. So this is kind of a turning point. It sounds like a, a pretty significant turning point in your life because I'm assuming that really for the first time you actually came into some significant personal wealth.
1: Yeah. But we were also helping tribes become successful in emerging gaming markets, but I want to be careful w- when I say this because not every tribe does really well with casino gaming. Yeah, There's a lot of small tribes that have small gaming enterprises, but the one thing they're able to do is keep people employed. And there's probably only a handful of tribes that really have come into significant wealth, but a lot of these tribes also help other tribes because now- there's access to capital.
0: But I guess kind of in the early 90s, or maybe the mid-90s, you, you sort of decided to to take yourself out of the gaming world. Um, why? What, what happened?
1: Yeah, I, I can remember the, the day that Stratosphere opened, my wife and I were in a limousine on the bottom watching this wonderful skyscraper casino that uh, really changed forever the skyline of Las Vegas. And I said, I think I'm going to leave tomorrow. Wow. I didn't want casino gaming to be what I was known for in life. I I really was a Native American. I was an entrepreneur. I really don't want my kids to think that gaming was where dad hung his hat in life. And that's when I made the decision to quit.
0: So I guess, I mean, as you were... You know, you're working for grand casinos, but in in the back of your mind, this is in like the mid-90s, you started to come up with an idea for a barbecue restaurant. And I know you had been obviously a barbecue fan and... You know, I know your dad was really into barbecue and would take you to places in the south side of Chicago, but were you always kind of experimenting over the years with like building fires and smoking meat and grilling meat like people knew you as the guy who made great barbecue?
1: Well, I can remember it was still in grade school, but I had come home and my dad was home and I can remember opening up the porch door And I was just overwhelmed by this aroma. And he had been to the south side of Chicago. He had gone to one of his favorite uh, barbecue joints. And I see my dad pulling this rack of ribs out of his lunch bucket that was wrapped in newspapers. This was the real deal, real wood, real flames, real fire. And I tasted that rib. And even though I've been eating barbecue all these years, it was that day, that time, that rib. I said, I'm going to learn how to make
0: barbecue. Why did you want to open up a restaurant?
1: Well, I don't think I started out that I wanted to open up a restaurant. I just wanted to make great barbecue. And so I started inviting friends over to my cabin and would say, Hey, why don't you guys come over this Friday and I'll cook you up some barbecue? Yeah. They said, sure. So then they started showing up and they'd say, oh, my God, Dave, this stuff's phenomenal. You ought to open up your own rib shack. Well, the more that happened, finally the, the dreams started to come together. And so in the north woods of Wisconsin, I started building this barbecue shack. So and,
0: wait, you, you decide. <laughs> I'm going to open this up. I think it, you opened it up in, in Hayward, right? In w- Hayward, Wisconsin. Is that right?
1: Hayward, Wisconsin, a little town of only 2,000 people.
0: I mean, let's just be honest. Most people, when you say Wisconsin, don't think Southern barbecue.
1: No, Wisconsin's all about bratwurst and cheese.
0: Right, exactly, right? It's it's bratwurst and cheese. And uh, and, um, and did anybody say to you, hey, you know, you make great barbecue, Dave, but there are 2,000 people in this town. How are you going to make this a sustainable business? I mean, did anybody say that? No.
1: Um. As I was building my barbecue shack, people would drive by and they'd say, Hey, Anderson, what are you doing? I said, I'm building a rib shack. (laughs) And they literally would laugh at me and they would say, Are you crazy? Hayward, Wisconsin? Why don't you go down to Memphis or Kansas City, Nashville, someplace down south where people really know barbecue? They said, you got to be nuts.
0: Coming up after the break why Hayward, Wisconsin turned out to be just the launchpad that Dave needed to become famous and how that first restaurant fueled an aggressive expansion that nearly broke the business stay with us I'm Guy Raz and you're listening to How I Built This from NPR Support for How I Built This comes from 3M committed to protecting healthcare workers globally 3M employee Chris knows that healthcare workers, like his daughter, may need to get up close to provide patient care. He's working hard to direct high-performing personal protective equipment to hospitals and hotspots so she and nurses like her can be protected while caring for their patients. Hear their story at 3M.com slash improving lives. 3M science applied to life. This message comes from NPR sponsor Checker, Want to diversify your workforce and change the future? Studies show that employment is the number one factor in reducing recidivism. Fair chance hiring provides a path to employment for 70 to 100 million qualified Americans. Choose Checker for fast, accurate, and fair background checks that give people a fair shot at their futures. Learn more at C-H-E-C-K-R slash N-P-R. Hey, welcome back to How I Built This from NPR. I'm Guy Raz. So it's 1994 and Dave Anderson has decided to open up a barbecue shack in the little town of Hayward, Wisconsin. And he set himself a pretty high bar.
1: Before I even opened the doors, I had already determined that I was going to have the best ribs, I was going to have the best honey buttered cornbread, the best barbecued baked beans. I had this list, and you know, I started out with my dad's recipes, but I visited every barbecue joint every time I was going anywhere. I always look at who had barbecue joints in town, and I learned things, I, I, I liked how somebody did their cornbread, or I liked maybe how they had one type of sauce, or uh, how they were doing their briskets. And, and guy, I know you've been all around this country, and if you were to tell me that you know for a fact they had better coleslaw in Anchorage, Alaska, I will be on a plane today. I will be flying up to Anchorage, Alaska, and by tomorrow night I will have stolen that recipe.
0: <laughs> but, but I mean, you, I mean, you knew like you had recipes because you were you were making barbecue like from the time you were a kid, right?
1: Yeah, I can remember even back then, we were the first family on our block that had a, had a charcoal grill. And so I started learning how to grill foods, and, and then I wanted to smoke things, and we, we didn't have a smoker. So I, I took a an old trash can, I cut a hole in the bottom, I took rebar, put it across so I could put my ribs on top of that. And so by time I opened Famous Dave's, I actually had been working on my recipes for 20 years. <laughs> because, you know, the ingredients that you use to create the, the sauces, the seasonings, barbecue is not easy. It's hard. <laughs> because there, to make a good barbecue sauce, you know, it's almost like Chinese cooking. There's a lot of flavors involved in making a good barbecue sauce. It's sour. It's got a robust spiciness to it. It's sweet. And then... There's different forms of sweetness to it. You've got your brown sugars. You have your honeys. You've got your fruit sauces. There's a lot of nuances to making great-tasting barbecue sauce. And I think, especially when you're creating robust flavors, that heat is very important. A lot of people may not realize this, but every menu item at Famous Dave's is hot. My coleslaw has a bite. My beans have jalapenos in them. That heat opens up the taste buds. And that's when you really can enjoy the full flavor of my cooking.
0: And did you give it the name Famous Dave's as kind of a joke? Because you weren't get famous, right?
1: Well... The road to Famous Dave's, not only are we in a small town, but I was also eight miles out of town. And on the road out of town, there's like Dave's Guns, Dave's Antiques, Dave's Boats. So I was going to name my place Dave's Famous Barbecue Shack. We're getting ready to open. I get my business cards, and it said Famous Dave's (laughs) Barbecue. I am mad. I can't believe the printer messed up my business cards. And my wife, in all her wisdom, said, Dave, calm down. Why don't you just leave it? You know, we're about ready to get open. Just leave it. So famous Dave's. <laughs> the rest is history.
0: Wow. I read that, uh, like, you were obsessed with all kinds of things. Like, when you when you set out to make the restaurant, you, you wrote down 100 things that you wanted to be the best at, not just, like, the best ribs and the best brisket and the best coleslaw but like the best bathrooms? Like is that is that right like you want to put a lot of attention into the bathrooms in the restaurant?
1: I believe that I'm the first one that coined the term bathroom marketing. I think that's one of the things that people talked about was was my bathrooms. My ladies bathroom had imported rose painted basins and 24-karat gold faucets on a marble base. I had wrought iron around the mirror. I had crown molding. I mean, who puts crown molding in a bathroom? But I can remember when we first opened, I got a call within the first week. Some lady said, Anderson, write me down for 830 on Thursday, your women's restroom. I said, what? She said, you heard me. 830. I want your women's bathroom. She said, I'm going to hold my next cocktail party in there.
0: Wow. So it was really just about, um, you know, it was all kinds of details. It wasn't just great food, but you wanted people to talk about the bathrooms.
1: Well, it wasn't just the bathrooms. I think it goes back back to my best of the best list. For instance, my music. I personally inventoried every blues song that was played in a famous daves. I had something like 6,000 blues CDs back then. I knew the difference between jump blues. Push beat blues. I didn't want any old blues. I, I wanted all this sort of Chicago jump blues. So when people were sitting in a famous Dave's, I almost wanted it to be sublimely. They had to start getting in this groove and they felt good and they were bopping around. So that was all of the experience. I wanted to touch all five senses from the smell of the wonderful wood aromas of meat smoking in my pit to them feeling good because of the music and then the visuals. I, I put a lot of antiques in my Famous Daves. So everything about Famous Daves was really sensory overload.
0: I'm looking at Hayward on, on the map, and it is... I mean, it's up there. It's in northern Wisconsin. It is far from everything. It's like got to be what two hours from Minneapolis? Three hours. Three hours. No, seriously,
1: okay. we're 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 out in the middle of nowhere, and even though I never advertised, it wasn't but months that the word quickly has spread throughout Wisconsin and and even as far away as Iowa. I mean, we're serving six thousand people a week, and and as I'd be walking through the restaurant, people would grabbed me and they Dave, you got to open up one of these in my town. I said, well, huh. where, where are you from? Well, we're from Des Moines, Iowa. We drove all the way up here. We heard about your barbecue. We just came all the way up here just to eat. People actually demanded us to have Famous Dave's. And so the, the first Famous Dave's outside of Hayward was in Minneapolis. I found an abandoned gas station. It was only 2,900 square feet. We only had 50 seats and we opened up again, without any advertising, but within weeks, I've got a line around the block. Wow, we're doing phenomenal numbers. I can't even keep food in stock. I had to get a refrigerator truck to park next to my little restaurant just so we had food to cook.
0: what what was the I mean, what was it that you were that you were doing that oh, was it I mean obviously your food was good, but you got to put the word out. How, how were people finding out about it? Was it just word of mouth?
1: You know, it was like word of mouth on steroids. Uh, You know, I have no idea, but people were telling friends and friends telling friends, you got to try the barbecue. But, you know, I, I think that's what speaks to Famous Dave's is that I went through all of the the things it took to make great barbecue i slow smoked our ribs until they were tender i flame charred them so we were able to caramelize the sauce on them we uh, but more than anything guy it's america's food barbecue is how america celebrates you know if you if you want to have a good time you tell your friends come on over we'll have a backyard
0: barbecue yeah um you know i know that while you were starting to get Famous Daves up and running you were also kind of struggling in your personal life. you were drinking heavily at the time um, and you would later recognize that as alcoholism can you can you tell me about that about what was going on in your life?
1: Well I, I'm pretty open that my life has had some very dramatic transformations. I, I do think sometimes that our Native American, folks struggle with uh, alcoholism. Um, I know my my mom's side, uh, it was in the family. I know on my dad's side, it was the family. And But you, you know, you didn't talk about those things. And so I wasn't really aware that was something I needed to watch out for. And You know, over the years, it just kind of built up where, you know, I couldn't wait till Friday so I could party and couldn't wait till Saturday so I could uh, party after work. And, you know, what I didn't realize was that uh, pretty soon I was partying on Sunday and it wasn't too long after that. I was partying on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. I was partying all the time. And one morning, my wife came to the bedroom. She said, Dave, you got some friends downstairs downstairs. You better go down and and see them. I said, well, I didn't remember inviting anybody over. She said, well, they're here, and, and they say you're friends of yours. I'm all confused. I have no idea what's going on. So I go downstairs, and sure enough, there was people that I knew, and it didn't take me too long to figure out what was going on. They were doing an intervention on me. And that was a tough thing. You know, nobody wants to admit that they struggle with alcoholism. Nobody wants to admit that they need help. But here I was listening to my wife, my son, and some really close friends tell me how much my drinking was taking a toll on the family. And when they said, Dave, you got a choice here. What are you going to do? And I said, you know, I, I, let's do this thing.
0: How How were you able to, um, did you go to treatment?
1: Yes, I. I uh, you know, treatment sounds like a tough thing, and I think it's one of the reasons why people who are struggling kind of don't want to have anything to do with it, uh, because it sounds like something people do to you. But today, I am so grateful. Uh, Twenty-five years this April, I've been sober. That I today I look at uh, treatment as really recovery, and recovery is a gift. Hmm. And and I mean, meantime
0: things were moving fast with Famous Dave's. Like, you opened that first location in in 94, and then a second one in 95 in Minneapolis. And then by 96, you've got four restaurants, I think all of them in that region. But then with, with just four restaurants, you decide that year to, to take the company public. Mm.
1: Well, you know, I'm very open about it. I think that was one of the worst mistakes of my life going public because... I didn't realize that when you go public, you don't own it anymore. But we went public and uh, we, we actually oversold. We were supposed to open up at $6. We ended up opening at 11
0: Wow. So Famous Dave's goes public in 1996 and a new CEO is named Douglas Lanham. Did you, did you bring Douglas on because you were now a public company and, and you thought it was better that he – kind of run the operation
1: well one of the things I was told by the Wall Street guys was that uh, I was just a barbecue guy and that I needed to hire Wall Street savvy mm. casual dining executives yeah the one thing was is that they tried to run famous Dave's as a casual dining company when really we were a barbecue company we sort of lost our heritage of being just barbecue and and people were trying to turn it into something
0: else. So you were basically the chairman of the board. Douglas Lanham lasted like a year or so before he stepped down because the stock price was falling. And and I guess around 2000, Famous Dave's kind of shifted or pivoted into a franchise model. Did you support that idea?
1: I, I think I was always supportive. Uh, looking back, though, I wish we had kept it within the family. But, you know, we had some good franchise uh, partners. But I, I think one of the problems early on was they tried to get rid of the lines that we had around the block. And so they thought that the way to alleviate that was to build bigger
0: boxes. So they were giant. They were just giant restaurants, too big.
1: Too big and today there's a lot of 6500 square foot boxes that
0: probably should have
1: never been built
0: but but to me the franchise model was going to be tough for famous daves because it was your recipe it was there was a whole technique um and you're kind of handing that off to franchisees and you you risk giving up the quality right when you when you turn to a franchise model
1: Well, I think that's one of the things that's hallmark about Famous Dave's is that we never really lost the quality of our food. My original menu was actually inspired by Jimmy John's dad, James Leotode, who, he said, Dave, he said, first of all, You want to keep everything simple. And the second thing, you always want to do everything in threes. And he said there's something magic about threes, whether it's the the Holy Trinity, it's the Three Little Pigs, the Three Amigos, On Your Market, Set, Go, Ready, Aim, Fire. People remember things in threes. So the original Famous Day's menu was really pork, beef, and chicken, coffee, milk, and pop, coleslaw, beans, and potato salad, you know, it was all in threes, and even how we trained people. We would season, smoke, and serve. Now there might be several steps underneath, but everything was done in threes. And I think that speaks to going back to that 100 best of the best things that I wanted to accomplish was I wanted to have the best training program in America. So I, I, in the early days, I spent about $2 million developing my training programs. And I created this leadership from the heart training program that actually focused on building up the people. The second thing I did was I created Hog Heaven University. I wanted to create certified pitmasters. And then I also created a train the trainer program. And so we spent a lot of money on training. In fact, people would look at uh, Famous Dave's and they'd say, wow, you guys spent a lot of money training people. What happens when you spend all this money training and and they leave? (laughs) All I had to do was look at them and say, well, what if I didn't train them with the best training I could do? And they stayed.
0: After the company went public and you kind of found an outside CEO and then, you know, there were other kind of corporate folks who were brought in to run the company. Did you feel like you were losing control over the business that, that this idea that you had was kind of slipping away from you?
1: I think for the most part, the only thing I regretted was the company building these bigger boxes. And, you know, barbecue is a type of thing that grows slow. And it's slow smoking. I I think that... uh, tried to grow too fast. I think that was one of the problems of being a publicly traded company. Now it seemed like we were being run by the quarterly earnings report. And if we were to miss earnings statement by one penny, my God, the stock got slaughtered. And as a Native American, I didn't have a lot of people around me that could counsel me. You know, I was sort of at the mercy of people that knew how to run publicly Traded companies on Wall Street that uh, uh, you know that that that's what I think I didn't feel comfortable with.
0: So when you had ideas, would they listen to you when you said, "Hey, let's do this, let's do that," or would they say, "Well, uh, you know, Dave, we we got this, we know what we should do"?
1: <laughs> you, you know, I think that's the struggle with any growing businesses. I think they thought of me. Even though I was the founder and I was the, the the creator of all this, they sort of thought of me as the entrepreneur. Yeah, and they thought that uh, you know the corporate people needed to take over, and and that the entrepreneur just sort of messed things up. Uh, and and today I, I wish I had fought harder, and and I had trusted my gut more because I would have stayed to the smaller footprints, and I would have stayed to a smaller core
0: menu. Hmm. Um, 2003, you stepped down to become an assistant secretary at the Bureau of Indian Affairs in Washington, D.C. Must have been an exciting opportunity for you. So you just kind of, at that point, just left Famous Dave's entirely. Like, you walked out and said, look, I'm going to go do this job, and maybe I'll be back, and see you in a couple of years?
1: Well, the reason why I left is I had to. When you accept a job with uh, as an assistant secretary or any high-level government job, you basically have to sign away all of your rights to any of your business interests. And, and so, as much as I wanted to stay involved, I, I couldn't. I had to, if I was gonna do this job for the president and serve the White House, I had to sign away all my business interests. <sighs> looking back I wish I had never did
0: that because why
1: well I think what happened when I went to Washington DC all of my entrepreneurial spirit got lost in the politics of being in government and I should have listened to people who counseled me and said Dave you don't want to go to Washington DC and I said but I really believe that I can make a difference. I wanted to encourage entrepreneurship within the tribes. I really had some great ideas, but when I got there, boy, did I get an awakening! That uh, you know, change doesn't happen in Washington D.C. like people think. And as an entrepreneur who's used to getting things done, I was stifled here, and I was really frustrated. And you know, it just seemed like every turn of the road, everything was gridlocked. Hmm
0: so you stepped down in 2005 clearly frustrated with with your job in washington and and i guess you tried to come back to the board of famous daves but the board refused to to give you a seat is that right
1: yes that's uh, one of the unfortunate things of publicly traded companies hmm. they felt they didn't need me you wow. know they you they were still a could... shareholder i was still a major shareholder yeah, yeah.
0: but you had no other influence over the company at that point
1: no none. wow they they felt they didn't need me anymore
0: Wow how did you take that I mean were you bad were you hurt were you how did you respond to that
1: I was devastated Hmm. I was devastated everything that I worked hard for all my life my ambitions were just like shattered it was like this was my dream I had worked hard all these years You know, in my kitchen, working on seasonings, working on recipes, working on my barbecue sauces, and I I look back and I think, how can they do that?
0: When we come back in just a moment, why Dave Anderson decides to walk away entirely from the business and the surprise phone call that eventually brings him back. Stay with us. I'm Guy Raz, and you're listening to How I Built This from NPR. Support for How I Built This comes from 3M, committed to protecting healthcare workers globally. 3M employee Chris knows that healthcare workers, like his daughter, may need to get up close to provide patient care. He's working hard to direct high-performing personal protective equipment to hospitals and hotspots so she and nurses like her can be protected while caring for their patients. Hear their story at 3M.com slash improving lives. 3M science applied to life. This message comes from NPR sponsor Don Julio Tequila. Don Julio Gonzalez didn't just farm agave. He worshipped them. He harvested each agave individually, plant by plant, only handpicking the agaves at optimum maturity. And his legacy lives on today through his exceptional tequila, Don Julio, a life devoted to tequila making. Please drink responsibly. Don Julio Tequila, 40% alcohol by volume, copyright 2021, imported by Diageo Americas, New York, New York. Hey, welcome back to How I Built This from NPR. I'm Guy Raz. So after losing a seat on the board of Famous Dave's, Dave Anderson continued to do publicity work and consulting for the company, but had much less of a say in how it was being run day to day. Famous Dave's was going through a lot of management shakeups, And in 2014, the job of CEO went to a former CEO from McDonald's named Ed Renzi.
1: He tried to turn Famous Dave's into a McRib. Hmm. Got rid of a lot of the history of Famous Dave's. There was a lot of fun antiques that were part of the decor. He started pulling the stuff off the walls. He started getting rid of... uh, you know, our honey buttered cornbread. He thought it would be easier to take the honey butter off the top of the cornbread and just put it in the cornbread. But there's, you know, one of the most interesting stories of Famous Dave's was in the beginning, I didn't have money enough to have a smoker. And I used a garbage can lid, and so our all-American barbecue feast is served on a garbage can lid. Well, Ed Renzi, Got rid of the garbage can lids and try to put it on some type of stainless steel platter. And I I can remember people just coming up to me and saying, Dave, my family just absolutely loves the garbage can lid with all your barbecue on it. Where'd the garbage can lid go? There's a lot of things that just was being the heart and soul of Famous Dave's was being ripped out. Hmm.
0: I guess you were um, so angry that you... I read that you like severed ties with the company in 2014. Is, what, what happened? Well,
1: I wasn't going to listen to some guy who ran McDonald's tell me how to be a barbecue pitmaster. I, I had barbecue sauce running through my veins. I wasn't going to stand for it. And, I, and I, I just said, look, if the board at the time wanted to have somebody like Ed Renzi, if this is what you're going to do, I'm not going to be part of it, and so I basically emotionally, legally, financially, was separated out of famous Daves,
0: wow, financially too. everything you divested it's all gone. You sold all your everything. stocks.
1: well, I didn't have much stock left. Hmm. you know what a lot of people don't realize is they they may think I had a lot of stock. well, over the years. In the beginning, you know, like any business, you have your highs and you have your lows. Well, there were times when Famous Dave's had its lows where I put up my stock as uh, collateral and there were margin calls. And by time things were where they were, there wasn't much left.
0: I mean, your name was still on all these storefronts all over the country. Um, well—
1: you know, one of the things I didn't realize is that when the company went public is you don't own your name anymore. Yeah. So consequently, I lost something that I had worked all my life for. Huh. And, and, you know, I, I wish I had attorneys that had given me better counsel in the early days because, you know, I'm a Native American. I I, I don't have a community of people around me that could give me good counsel. And if the attorneys really cared for me, what they should have said was, Dave, you shouldn't go public. You really have something special. You should really keep this in your family.
0: So you step away and the the brand is, is not doing well at this point. There are a number of management shakeups. And, and I guess in 2016, you get a call. They some they want you back they want you to come help them rebrand and return to their roots what what's the story so i'm kind of
1: out of famous dave's and one day i get a call from mike wright who was running the famous products retail line and really mike was a good friend and he called me up he said dave he said i'm in the area do you mind if i stop over so mike uh, shows up my house And he said, Dave, he said, there's some things we got to talk about. He said, the company misses you. All the franchise owners miss you. Your customers, they miss you. People who love Famous Dave's are missing you. You've got to come back. And I said, well, I don't think the leadership wants me. He said, that's not true. He said, people want you. They want you involved. And I said, well, I am out of Famous Dave's. I'm not going back. And he really laid a guilt trip on me he said dave if there was ever a time and there may never be another time if there was ever a time that you come back you got to come back now because ed renzi's not going to be around the company really needs you there's new leadership
0: we need you back huh that must have felt pretty validating
1: i was in tears yeah I, i thought i would never hear that again i um after Mike left, my wife and I talked, and it was really, you know, a tough conversation of what do we do? Famous Dave's has really been such a love-hate relationship where I loved the food I created. I loved being with our guests. And the reason why I came back was my wife and I came to an understanding that it was really the people that we cared about. It was the franchise owners. It was the people who came to Famous Dave's who loved the food, and I think it was for that, as I knew I had to come back.
0: Hmm. So you you start to I guess essentially consult with with a company to to help them like do a rebrand, and, and one of the things I, I guess you kind of suggested was to to just kind of bring back the the, the classics, right the the Cajun chicken sandwich and the brisket burgers and other things. But also, um, I guess at that time, this is 2016, and even to this day, um, Famous Dave's started to buy back some of its franchises in order to kind of retake control, I guess, of the business?
1: Yeah. One of the things I think the company realized is that there was some franchise owners who probably had enough. There was a number of management changes over the years and And they kind of got disenfranchised with the, you know, not having the passion they once had. So, one of the things the company realized is that the only way they could right the ship was they probably had to buy back some of the franchise, reinvest in them, get back the training programs that we used to have, and just kind of reinvent ourselves and bring back the basics, uh, getting back to what made us famous in the beginning. We needed to be devoted to making people happy.
0: A new CEO came in in 2018, Jeff Cravello. And I guess, I mean, did he started to ask, you know, kind of bring back some of those things like the the trash can and the the history. I mean, you go on the website now and the, the your story is, is right there. It's front and center.
1: Well, I think one of the things that makes Jeff so special is that he grew up eating Famous Dave's in Chicago. He loved Famous Dave's. He was the first CEO who actually called me up on a regular basis. I mean, Jeff and I talk all hours of the the night. He'll he'll call me up at 11 o'clock, and we'll talk till 1 in the morning. This is how passionate this guy is. Jeff reaches out to the franchise partners. You'll see Jeff in a restaurant actually pushing a broom when we were doing a remodel on one of the restaurants. Jeff was there with a paintbrush. I had never seen any prior CEOs actually get in a restaurant and want to work.
0: And and. I mean, your role really in the company in a sense, and, and this is not, I hope this is sounds complimentary. I mean, you really are, you're like Colonel Sanders. I mean, you really are the, the kind of the ambassador, the brand ambassador of the company. Do you feel like you are listened to more now than you, than you were in the past?
1: Today, there's without a doubt, Jeff listens to me. Uh, Jeff is the first CEO that actually brought me back to the board mm-hmm. and uh, said, you know, the board needs to hear your ideas, Dave. Because after all, you, you know, I, I'm i one of the few barbecue restaurant owners that was actually inducted into the National Barbecue Hall of Fame. Yeah. I mean, celebrity judge at all of the big barbecue events. I live in this world of barbecue. Yeah.
0: By the way, is the company still publicly traded?
1: Today? Yeah. Yes, the company is still publicly traded. I think our stock is around 3 bucks. Right. So, uh, you know, the only place you can go is up.
0: Do you think that, uh, I mean, you know, we're in the midst of this pandemic, right? And many states in which Famous Dave's is operating ha- have certain restrictions and, and there's a lot of delivery. And as you know, the restaurant industry has really been hit hard. Um, do you know, I mean, how how is Famous Dave's doing in the midst of this, this crisis?
1: You know, Famous Dave's really is uh, built on what's basically picnic food, barbecue travels, and it travels really well. When you look at our menu, when when you're serving uh, barbecued ribs, pulled pork sandwiches, beans, coleslaw, that's the type of food that travels. The Famous Days restaurants are built for takeout. We have our own dedicated takeout doors, and that's why I think Famous Days, for the first time in a long, long time, is on the road to recovery. So, we're actually able to thrive, unlike a lot of restaurants who are struggling. Hmm.
0: You know, given given all the ups and downs of of your career, and a lot of incredible ups and a, and a lot of just incredible triumphs um, and successes, but also some really tough tough breaks. I mean, um, you know, even even with Famous Dave's, you know, kind of taking it public and then, you know losing the business for a while and the brand and 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 of course now you're back and in, involved with it but i mean when you kind of look back on on the different decisions you made would you have done things differently or do you think that you kind of had to make the mistakes you made in order to in order to learn how to do things right
1: you know guy I struggle, I think, every day, sometimes thinking that I wish I could do things differently. But, you know, the reality is I really have overcome a lot of adversities in my life. I have done things in my life that I wish I hadn't done. I should have been dead three times. I've been broke three times. But every time, I've always come back stronger. You know, I often tell people that life is not always on top of the mountain it's the valleys and it's the struggles down there that you you have to come back from where you learn things i think that's how you grow and and so if you're not out there on the edge making things happen how do you know what's possible But one of the things I I go back to is that the food of Famous Days, my original recipes are still holding the test of time. And as much as we shoot ourselves in the foot, as much as we've made our mistakes in growing, is that uh, people have always resonated with my food. And and so, yes, we've had our tough times at Famous Days, but, but look at what we've also accomplished. Our barbecue products are in big box retailers like Target, Sam's Club, Costco. We are all over America. Yeah, It could not have happened if things were easy. So, you know, I think my story of my struggles and overcoming the my ADHD, uh, overcoming my alcoholism, overcoming the tough times in my life it, it is no different than the story of
0: famous Dave's. Yeah, I mean, that's the thing, Dave. You know, you your legacy will continue to live on after you're gone because at some point we're all gone, right, obviously, um, and this brand <laughs> yeah. will continue. And is that more important to you, that legacy, than, than, than wealth, or are they both equally important? Well,
1: first of all, I don't think I've ever worked to, to get a paycheck more than I've worked to be a positive difference in the lives of other people. Mm. I've worked really hard to be good at what I do. But more than that, Guy, I think if anything people remember about me, I've been able to build something and give jobs to families and create opportunity where there was none. And a lot of people sometimes say, God, would I wish I was in your shoes? (laughs) I have to laugh and say, I don't think so. But the one thing I can share is that I am grateful. I live a life of gratefulness. I live a life of sobriety. And I live a life that I am so fortunate to be living in this country. Because the things that I have done, it doesn't make sense. There's there's no rhyme or reason that I was able to get a bank loan on my signature alone, much less having a 1.98 grade average in high school, no undergrad and getting into Harvard University. Who would ever known that from some Indian kid growing up on the west side of Chicago?
0: Yeah. When you think about um your story and and everything you accomplished, do you do you think that what happened to you happened because of your skill and and hard work and perseverance, or do you think a lot of it had to do with luck?
1: Well <laughs> I don't know about luck. I, I, I wish I had been lucky. <laughs> <laughs> You know, uh, you, you know. I think luck is created when you have a dream, you're willing to work for that dream, you're willing to work hard. Uh, you know, I, I think luck is a byproduct of you just being 100% devoted to never, ever giving up.
0: That's Dave Anderson, founder of Famous Dave's. By the way, some of you may remember that several years ago, Dave competed in a Food Network barbecue challenge called Best in Smoke, and he made it all the way to the finals until...
1: till right at the very end, they pull a surprise. You've got 20 minutes to cook something out of tofu. Huh. I said, what's tofu? In all my years of cooking, I had no clue what tofu was. And today, I know there's like a, a firm tofu sure. and there's like a silky smooth
0: yeah. tofu. Medium, Well, yeah. they
1: gave us the silky smooth, <laughs> and I lost $50,000 because I could not cook tofu.
0: Cannot grill silky tofu. Oh, it, it,
1: it, I tried. It, it, it fell through the yeah. grill grates. <laughs>
0: Hey, thanks so much for listening to the show this week. You can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. If you want to write to us, our email address is hibt at npr.org. If you want to follow us on Twitter, we're at How I Built This or at Guy Raz. And on Instagram, it's at Guy.Raz. This episode was produced by J.C. Howard with music composed by Ramtin Arablui. Thanks also to Liz Metzger, Dareth Gales, Julia Carney, Neva Grant, and Jeff Rogers. Our intern is Farah Safari. I'm Guy Raz, and you've been listening to How I Built This. This is NPR. How do we reinvent ourselves? And what's the secret to living longer? I'm Anoush Zamarodi. Each week on NPR's TED Radio Hour, we go on a journey with TED speakers to seek a deeper understanding of the world and to figure out new ways to think and create. Listen now.